Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. And this week, we've got an absolutely wonderful sermon for you. In the words of the hymn, religion never was designed to make our pleasures less. And here we've got a sermon on sunshine in the heart from Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. It was preached on the 15th of June, 1862, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. If you want to follow along with more of these sermons, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up to a newsletter week by week at www.mediagratii.org podcasts, who are kind enough to sponsor and distribute this podcast. Each week we read through uh, seven Spurgeon sermons, typically, and this week it's 451 to 457. Sunshine in the Heart is Sermon 454, and it's this week's featured sermon. Now, in the last few weeks, we've chosen a few uh, particular exhortations. Uh, there have been some doctrinal sermons. Uh, there have been some uh, pressing sermons. There have been some evangelistic sermons. This is a absolutely superb sermon. This if if I could, you know, when I'm grown up, maybe I'll begin to begin to preach like this. He begins this particular sermon. He says there are two things in our text, Psalm 37, verse 4. First of all, the life of a believer described as a delight in God. And then a second wonder that God will give that believer the desires of your heart. Now, why are these wonders? First of all, and fundamentally, that neither of these is understood by someone who does not know God. True religion overflows with happiness and joy, but ungodly persons and mere professors, that is, people who profess to know Christ but don't really, never look upon religion as a joyful thing. To them it is service, duty or necessity, but never pleasure and delight. So you ask the unconverted person what they think of religion, and it's a weariness, it's a dreariness, it's a heaviness. It's, it's, there's nothing in it that they yearn after. The thought of delight in religion, says Spurgeon, is so strange to most men that no two words in their language stand farther apart than holiness and delight. But the joy of knowing Christ, the brimful delights, the overflowing bliss that saints discover in their Lord, so far from serving him from custom, we'd follow him should all the world cast out his name as evil. And so Spurgeon says it's, it's a shocking notion that Christ's religion should make men miserable, but it's a common one. Delight and true religion are as allied, he says, as root and flower, as indivisible as truth and certainty, two precious jewels set side by side in the same socket of gold. But now there's the counterpoint to that. Not only is true religion true delight, but the true Christian obtains from God the desires of his heart. And again, the worldly man says, well, I thought religion was all self-denial. It was all no, 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 and don't, don't, don't. And the religion of most men, admits Spurgeon, and he's not necessarily talking now about true religion, consists nothing in nothing more than an open abstinence from sins which they secretly love. It's all negative godliness. 
And so people suppose us to be a crabbed, miserable race of persons who, no doubt, make up by some private allowance for denying ourselves in public. So we've got a long list of all the things that we don't do, and we indulge ourselves and no one can see us having played the part of a religious person. Now, says Spurgeon, it's true that religion is self-denial, but it's equally true that it is not self-denial, because the, the new man in Christ delights after the things of God, even as he puts to death the things of the flesh. And so when Spurgeon hears people say, well, you know, my religion consists in some things that I must do and in some things that I must not do, I reply, mine consists in things that I love to do and in avoiding things that I hate and would scorn to do. Now, I think that's stunning. I think that's wonderful. Does our religion just consist in some things I must do and in some things that I must not do? Or does it consist in things that we delight to do and avoiding that which is, is, is loathed by our souls as we yearn after godliness? Andrew Fuller, who was a predecessor of Spurgeon as a particular Baptist, in one of his circular letters to the churches with which he was associated, asks at one point this particular question, or makes this point, that if, the, if we were in a right state before God, our question would not be so much what must I do as what can I do. And that's the same spirit in which Spurgeon writes. And so the believer feels that God is his native element. He doesn't escape from God or from his master's will or service. And if we were taken out of it, the sooner he could get back to it, the better. The believer's religion is a matter of delight and satisfaction. He delights himself in God and so joyously receives the desire of his heart. And so to the text. Now, I, I, I'd just be happy basking in those first bits, but two things in the text very plainly. The first is a precept written upon sparkling jewels, delight thyself in the Lord. The second, a promise priceless beyond rubies, he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Those are the two divisions. Spurgeon simply takes them as one following upon the other. And as he often does, uh, dividing this up into the main two, there are the subheadings and uh, the the second subheading, uh, the second main heading, I suppose we could say, uh, which is the promise priceless beyond rubies, doesn't necessarily have the same formal structure as the first part, doesn't unfold after quite the same pattern, uh, but has its own particular scope and force. So then, a precept written upon sparkling jewels. Brethren, he says, when delight becomes a duty, then certainly duty is a delight. When it becomes my duty to be happy, when I have an express command to be glad, then indeed I must be a sinner if I refuse my own joys and turn aside from my own bliss. Oh, what a God we have who has made it our duty to be happy. What a gracious God who accounts no obedience to be so worthy of his acceptance as a gladsome obedience rendered by a joyous heart, delight thyself in the Lord. And so Spurgeon splendidly blows out of the water all that kind of shriveled Christianity that is afraid of the language of duty. But he understands that we have a duty to be happy. And if that sounds contradictory, let's move on. What then is this delight? Then, from where does this delight come? 
Then thirdly, under this heading, when is this delight to be practiced? And lastly, why is it so rare? What then is this delight? And Spurgeon says, I can't explain it. I've been thinking about it, but I can't answer my own question. You know, he says, it's a word by itself, a delightful word, and I cannot use anything but its own self to describe it. If you look at it, it is flashing with light. It sparkles like a star, nay, like a bright constellation, radiant with sweet influences like the Pleiades. It's joy, but joy running over. It's rest, but the utmost activity of a pa every passion of the soul is permitted. It's mirth without froth. It's peace, but more than that, it's peace with festivity, with all the streamers hanging in the streets. What am I going to compare it to, he asks. Well, he says as he, as he struggles, you take the word and spell it over letter by letter and pray God to put your hearts into a sweet frame of mind made up of the following ingredients. A perfect rest from all earthly care, a perfect resignation of yourself into God's hands, an intense confidence in his love to you, a divine love to him so that you feel you would be anything or do anything for him. Then there must be added to all this a joy in him. And when you have these, they must be all set a boiling. And then you have delight in the Lord your God. Well, where, where do you go from there? It... it, it it humbles you, but it just lifts you up at the same time. You you feel the thrill of Spurgeon's heart as he tries to express what it means to have this joy in God. Matthew Henry, he quotes, Desire is love in action, like a bird on the wing. Delight is love in rest, like a bird on its nest. Yeah, there's, there's really nowhere you can go that Spurgeon hasn't already tried to reach. This is delight. Do we preach it? We're not always very good at it. But do we have any sense of this? Do we expect to find this kind of delight? Well, says Spurgeon, where does it come from? Delight yourself in the Lord, he says. Be glad, O daughter of Zion, for the Lord is king forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You have God on his throne, enough to make the most wretched man happy if he only believes. Plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Lose yourself in his immensity. Let his attributes cover up all your weakness and all your folly and everything else that can make you groaning and desponding. Rejoice in him, though you cannot rejoice in yourselves. Triumph in the God of Israel, though in yourselves you have cause enough for despair. And you see what he's saying. It's God and God himself. He's not denying weakness and folly, the groaning and desponding soul, the, the cause enough for despair that we have in ourselves in this world. But God is yet God. And everything that he is, if he is ours, causes us delight. So you delight yourself in the very existence of God, but you can delight yourself in everything that God has done. And he refers to the Psalms about the enduring mercy of God, the catalogues of all his great goodness. Or delight yourself in all that God is to do, in all the splendid triumphs he has yet to achieve, in all the glories of the latter days, in all the splendours of his throne, when all the hosts of God shall meet at last, in his triumph over death and hell, and in his ultimate victory over sin, when he shall make the whole earth to become filled with his praise. Delight yourselves, he says, in a Trinitarian joy, 
in God as your Father, as your friend, as your helper. Delight yourselves in Jesus Christ as your brother, as your bridegroom, as your shepherd, as your all in all. Delight yourselves in Christ in all his offices as prophet, priest and king. Triumph in him, in all his garments, for they all smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Delight yourselves in Christ, in his glory and in his humiliation, in his cross and in his crown, in his manger and in his eternal delight, wherein he led captivity captive. Delight yourselves in the Holy Spirit, in all his various dealings with men's minds. Delight in Pentecost, and in Pentecost that are yet to come. You see how Spurgeon ranges across the work and uh, the being of God himself. It is the Lord in his glory. It is God in all his mighty acts, past and to come. It is God in himself as Father, Son and Spirit. A third question. We've got to press on, but oh, do, come, come and read this sermon. It's absolutely stunning. Delight yourself in the Lord. When is this delight to be practised? Well, precepts without limit as to time are for perpetual observance. So there's no time limit on this text. And Spurgeon says there are at least two occasions when it's particularly hard to delight in God. And the first of those, it is hard to delight in God when everything goes well with us. Now that might be stunning or in a, in a different sense. That's, that's difficult to grasp and Spurgeon understands that. But he says, you understand the danger that when you are stuffed full of comforts, when providence smiles upon you, it is too easy to delight in God's mercies rather than in God himself, to delight in the creature rather than in the creator, in the benefits rather than the benefactor, the gifts rather than the giver. And so, says Spurgeon, sunshiny days are the greatest times of temptation, when we pride ourselves or are in danger of priding ourselves more in the mercies and the privileges than in the God who gives them. So, do not set your soul on God's gifts alone, because God is the portion of the believer's soul. And another time when it's hard to delight in God not as hard as the first, says Spurgeon, is when everything goes badly with us. <clears throat> it's those extremes of experience that tend to test us. How often I've noticed, he says, that believers do rejoice in God much more readily in their afflictions than they do in their prosperity. I've seen great saints where there was little mercy, and I've seen driveling saints where there were great providential blessings. God's birds sing best in cages. And the praise of God comes better out of the mouth of the furnace of affliction than even from the top of the mountain of communion. We're so constituted, he says, that unless God screws the strings of our heart up by pain and affliction, we never give forth much sweet music to him. But it's hard when everything seems to drop away to delight still in God. So, when are we to be miserable? Never, says Spurgeon. Not at times? No, not if you do your duty. But ought not a saint sometimes to be cast down? They are cast down, says Spurgeon, but they ought not to be. Bear in mind here that this is a man who often wrestles against despondency of spirit. Well, but many of God's saints are full of doubts and fears. 
I know they are, he says, and the more's the pity. It's this question and answer thing that he often does where he's putting a a question in the mouth of the congregation or an, an imaginary conversation partner and then giving them an answer. And his point is to himself and to us that so far as the promise is concerned and the precept is concerned, it is the daily, constant, hourly duty and business of the true believer to delight himself in the Lord his God. So then, why is this delighting in God so rare? Why do you see so many desponding Christians? Why so many doubting Christians? Why do you see so many whose religion seems to them to be a yoke, and a very heavy yoke too? It is, I fear, because there is so little on the one hand of genuine religion and so little on the other of deep-toned religion, where the little that there is, is genuine. Now Spurgeon is faithful. In, in those uh, sermons of a different tone that we've been looking at, whether he's exhorting us to duties or pressing us for endeavour, whether he's preaching to us as sinners in need of a saviour, if he's dealing with doctrinal points, he's never without comforts. And here in a sermon full of joys and comforts, he is not going to avoid challenge. The true Christian, he says, takes to his religion by grace with ardour and delight. He loves it, he delights in it. The hypocrite pulls a long face, he looks wretched, he makes himself as miserable as ever man can be when the time has come for it, but he never, he says, never did and never can and never will delight himself in God as a rule. Only the true believer can have a constant and abiding satisfaction and delight in the service and love of God. Notice he doesn't say always has, but can have a constant and an abiding satisfaction. And that's an evidence so sure and infallible that if any among you delight in God, I conclude without hesitation that you are a saved soul. And someone might say then, well, why should a Christian be such a happy person? Why, it's good for our God because it gives him honour among the sons of men. It's good for us. It makes us strong because the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's good for the ungodly for when they see Christians glad, they long to be believers themselves. It's good for our fellow Christians. It comforts them and tends to cheer them. Whereas if we look gloomy, we shall spread the disease and others will be wretched and gloomy too. For all these reasons and many more that can be given, it's a good and pleasant thing that a believer should delight himself in in the Lord. And so he moves on to his second point, and we must go with him for time's sake. He shall give you the desires of your heart is a promise priceless beyond rubies. And Spurgeon isn't just going to sort of go over the same kind of outline. He's developing his argument. There's a, a logical progression here. What connection is there between these two parts of the text? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Well, there's this connection that those who delight in God are qualified to have the promise fulfilled. That's the first uh, connection that he wants to draw, and he's going to now build on some of those things beyond it. They're qualified in the first place as to the desires, the the, the things that they want. One of the best things that the Lord does for some men is to check them and to thwart them, to prevent them, because there's many a man who's gone to heaven though through not having had his desires who would have gone to hell if he'd had them. God's blessings are sometimes his unwillingness to answer our foolish and unwise prayers. But, says Spurgeon, when a man's delight is in God, his desires follow after. 
and they are of such a sort that God may be glorified in the granting of them, and the man himself profited by the receiving of them. You see, when the delight is rightly tuned, so must the desires be. The worldly man sails along the stream of his mercies and gets further and further from God, and he becomes more and more an idolater. But the Christian gets mercies by which he sails nearer and nearer to God, and his mercies become highways to the throne of God himself. So those desires are brought into being and directed in accordance with our delights in God himself. And so they're safe, they're sound. Still, someone says, what are those desires which we're sure to receive? What are these uh, precious blessings? Well, we must single out those who delight themselves in God and, says Spurgeon, I believe the range of their desires will be found in a very short compass. What is the appetite of the man who delights in God? It is God himself. I would wish to be perfect, free from every sin, from every imperfection, from all self, from all temptation, from all love of the world, from all care for everything or anything that is contrary to God's word. Isn't that your wish, you that delight in God? That, that God would, would make you that which pleases him? Why? Because you already delight yourself in him. These are the things that he delights in, and so they are the things that you desire. If that's the case, the Lord will gladly give you the desire of your heart if you only delight yourself in the Lord. You see how this all holds together. Delight in God means desires after God, that you would want what delights the object of your delight. And says Spurgeon, as a preacher, I have a desire which if now I might offer it, knowing that it should be granted it me, it would be this. I desire to see you all converted. He wants them to delight in God too. The highest desire I know, that which my soul feels most when it pants the most and aspires the most after some big and great thing, is that I may present every man of you perfect before God at the last, that I may not only be clear of your blood, which is a great thing, but that I may have you with me when I shall say, Here am I, Lord, and the children you have given me for Christ. There's something in there of Samuel Rutherford's testimony to his congregation that heaven would be two heavens to him, for not only would he be there with Christ, but they would be there with Christ and him. And so he says, this is what we desire, men who delight themselves in God so that when they come to God in prayer and pray for the congregation, they will get those good things from God. Give us some such men in this congregation and in this church who love the Lord and rejoice in him. What an effect their prayers will have, says Spurgeon. You can, by your prayers, bring down such showers of the Spirit upon the Christian church that the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. And if you cease to delight in God, you can shut up heaven itself so that no rain descends and the whole church becomes barren and unfruitful once again. So these desires that we have in our dealings with God that hang upon the delight that we have in God himself, these are glorious and dangerous things because if our desires follow after our delights, then if our delights are rightly tuned, then the things that we plead for will be pleasing to God to grant. But if our desires follow after delights that do not tend heavenward, we can shut up the windows of heaven itself so that we become barren and unfruitful. The delight comes first. The desires follow after. 
and I think it's worth us remembering that a little delight in God will give us at least a little desire for God, and therefore God will delight to answer those desires with greater delights in him. We may say, well, I have faint desires because I have faint delights. But if you're faintly delighted in God, at least you're heading in the right direction, and the Lord delights to fill up those desires for him, though they may begin low. And so now to wind up, says Spurgeon, mark this, consider this, take note of this. This is the only thing that a man can delight in and get his desires. He's thinking now about the emptiness of other desires that do not have this true delight at their heart. You can get all the money you want and no satisfaction. You can have everything that this world offers and it will leave you empty. You can pursue fame and attain it and be wishing that you could only get rid of it. Uh, you you want to advance in your business, you want to go on in the world, you want to get uh, climb the greasy ladder or the greasy pole or whatever it may be and, and you've always got some dream down the line and there's always something else that you want. Says Spurgeon, getting the desire of a man's heart is like chasing a phantom. It's here, there and everywhere. Now on the hill, now down in the valley, you leap down on it, it's away again on the next hill and then on the next and you find your chase is fruitless. Satisfaction in this world is like the diamond which the fool sees lying at the foot of the rainbow. So he runs after it, and as he runs, the rainbow's ever in the distance, and he can never find what he expected. If you delight in the things of this world, and your desires run after them, you will always be running, and you will never be reaching. You'll always be looking, and you'll never be finding. But, says the preacher, if you would have the desire of your heart, delight in your God. Give him your love, give him your heart. Plunge deep into this stream and you shall have all that you can wish for. The desire of your heart to the full extent shall be granted. Oh, this is a drawing sermon, isn't it? Isn't this a, a stirring sermon? Yes, of a different order to some of those exhortations we've had before. But here is Spurgeon pulling on our heartstrings, drawing us heavenward, seeking to paint God in all his goodness, all his glory, all his beauty, all his majesty, and saying, what more could you desire? What more could you delight in? Bring, bring your heart to God. Dwell upon God until he is altogether glorious in your eyes. Dwell upon Christ until he's altogether lovely in your sight. Dwell upon the Spirit until he's altogether precious in your heart. Give yourself then to the, the seeking after those things which the God in whom you delight delights in, and God will be only too ready to pour out those sought-after mercies upon you. And what if you cannot delight in God? God, you might say, is angry with me. You are right, says Spurgeon, you cannot delight in an angry God. How can you delight in God if your sins are unforgiven? How can you come? By one step, he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then you shall delight in the Lord. This is the way into this joy. And perhaps we might also say, if we've been robbed of this delight, if we've lost this delight, if we don't find this delight, if we can't cultivate this delight, it is always found at the foot of the cross, gazing up at a crucified Saviour. And if we've drifted away, 
This, if you've begun to delight in something else, turn back to the crucified Jesus where God's love is made known, that one whom the Spirit delights to magnify. And you, you've trusted Christ. You shall know that your sin is forgiven, that you're reconciled by God to God by the death of his Son, and you may go your way and delight yourself in God. For the promise is this, your desire shall be granted you. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.